Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Casey Butler. Before I begin, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Because as I look around here, I think I've seen maybe two faces that I've seen before, but the rest of you I don't actually know. So um, just so that you know a little bit about myself and where I come from, I thought I'd say a few words. Um, I am a nutritionist and I work at a place called Cedarvale Health and Lifestyle Retreat. Have any of you heard of that place before? A few hands are going up, that's good. So Cedarvale Retreat is a health and wellness center located about two hours south of here, approximately in Kangaroo Valley. And um, I work there, yes, as a nutritionist, I help to manage the guest program and also we run a training program there for young people especially, young and young at heart, <laughs> um, where people can uh, gain a year of experience learning to be medical missionary or health ministry training program. So I direct that program, and um, it's a real blessing to be engaged in that work. Cedarvale Health and Lifestyle Retreat is a self-supporting ministry recognized by the Seventh Adventist Church. So we, um, yeah, very much supporting of the mission there. Um, yeah, so that's a little bit about me, but I want to uh, begin now with the rest of this topic. You can see here the topic today is the marriage of God's character. And as I mentioned to the children, I started a story with them and I want to pick up a little bit more from that story and carry it forward. The man who was so fascinated about the world around him and made observations about the world around him, when he was an adult, he didn't lose that fascination. One day he was sitting outside and um, he was blowing bubbles as we do as adults, you know, blow bubbles. So he was blowing bubbles <laughs> and he was fascinated by the light that was reflecting off the bubbles because there was all these different colors, you know, red and green and um, blue. And he was trying to figure out, you know, how that light worked and the colors. And he got the idea to go and um, do some experiments with prisms, you know, the crystal sort of prisms, you shine the light through and it refracts out. Well, he did some experiments with that and was able to determine that light with all of the colors of the rainbow comes from pure white light. You know, white is made up of all those colors. He was able to work that out. And um, so that was one of his discoveries. Another thing that he did was um, he was fascinated by um, how the moon could travel around the earth and just keep going and not just fling off into outer space. And he thought about this more and more, you know, how does this work? And there was the idea of how the, the, um, there's a pull, a force that's pulling on, on the moon to hold it close to the earth. And one day he was sitting outside by an apple tree and an apple fell down beside him. And he thought, huh, you know, that's a force pulling down. Um, I wonder if that's the same kind of force that's pulling on the moon. Anyway, he was able to make a whole, all the mathematical calculations to determine um, gravity and how that works. And if any of you know some of science history, you've probably already got the name in your head of who I'm talking about. This is Sir Isaac Newton. 
And Sir Isaac Newton, he is one of the, a giant of science. He helped to develop the, the current uh, the mathematical field of calculus, um, as I mentioned, the maths behind gravity, and um, also is considered the father of modern physics. Um, and in his work as a scientist, Sir Isaac Newton was very faithful to uh, one of the foundational principles of science, which is the scientific method. And the scientific method is one of the best ways to learn about the natural world and be able to understand how it works. And just in case you can't remember what the scientific method is, might have been a while since you studied it at school or something, I just want to do a little bit of review for you. So the scientific method involves these processes. Firstly, you make observations. Then you form a hypothesis. Now, hypothesis simply means that you are developing an explanation of what you see around you. Then you want to examine for evidence to see if it supports the hypothesis. Okay. And then finally, you can draw conclusions from the evidence. And the greater the evidence that you have, the greater the validity of the conclusions. And so then you end up having a hypothesis transition to be called what we call a scientific theory or law, which are the, what we consider as much as we know of as facts in the science world. So this is a great way to study the world around us and learn about it and how it works. But you know, it's actually a very good way of studying God's word. In principle, some of the best methods of Bible study are you take a topic from Scripture, you look at all the evidence that the Scripture contains about that topic, and then you draw conclusions about the topic and what it means. They're some of the best ways we can understand the truth of God's Word. So, it turns out that we are going to follow this approach in our topic today. The marriage of God's character is an attempt to rightly explain and understand the character of God. And as we go through this topic, first of all, we're going to establish some foundational facts. Then we're going to make some observations and propose a hypothesis. After which we're going to look for some evidence to support the hypothesis and then draw some conclusions that will help us come to an understanding, or hopefully a clear understanding, of God's character. Before I go any further, though, I'm very conscious of the fact that this subject is a very high and holy subject. God's character is holy. God is holy. And it's so easy for his character to be misrepresented not only in our minds, but in the way that we represent him to others. So I just want to pray now, again, asking for the Holy Spirit, especially guide our minds, so we get a clear concept of God's character today. Bow for a moment. Gracious Father in heaven, I just want to pause at this moment to invite your presence here. We are about to examine a topic, Lord, which is so powerful and influential for our lives. And we want to understand you are right. I just pray that your spirit only would be able to influence our minds at this time, that you would shut us in with your holy angels, that you would uh, save us from distraction. May we grasp this concept clearly, Father, 
and may our lives be transformed as a result. As we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. How would you summarize God's character in one word? I think I hear people saying love, and if so, you are right. That is what the scripture says. Let us have a look. You can turn in your Bibles if you wish to, if you have them with you. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7 and 8. Looking at 1 John 4, 7 and 8. First John 4, verse 7 and 8. And it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. So, it's quite plain here. God is love. We understand that that is, that is how we can summarize his character. But the question is, what is love? There are so many different interpretations of love, and what does that actually mean? Well, if we have a look at a dictionary, if we look at the Oxford Dictionary, we find this meaning. Love means a strong feeling of affection, a great interest or pleasure in something, or a personal thing that someone loves. These are probably, um, would be what we would expect to understand love. I mean, this is how we use the word love in our everyday English language. Um, and so this is, this is pretty much what we would expect. Interestingly though, if we have a look at the Greek word for love, which is the word in this verse in John, um, it's agape. I'm sure you've heard of that before. And essentially agape captures the meaning of affection, but it also captures the meaning of benevolence. Now, what does benevolent mean? Let's make sure that's clear. Well, benevolence simply means that someone is well-meaning or well-intentioned. So they have good intent. Okay? So that combined with infection is what agape is saying is love. So, let us now look at the next verse in 1 John 4. 1 John 4 verse 9. And what we want to think about as we read this verse is... Is this more of a demonstration of affection or benevolence? Okay, let's have a look. 1 John 4, 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. What do you think? More of a display of affection or benevolence? Benevolence. Okay, yes, I would agree with that. If it was affection only, would it have the power to make someone do that? Do you think? Is affection strong enough to make someone do what Christ did in this verse? It's not strong enough, isn't it? You need that motive power, that principle power, good intention. That is what is driving what Christ did. Yes, the affection comes along with it, but that was what was really driving it. So you can see how important the, the aspect of benevolence is. The other element here that is displayed is selflessness. This display of love was a selfless display of love. It was for the good of us. It, wasn't, it was disregarding 
um, Christ for his own sake. You know, this was all for someone else. And so with that, we can actually now just put together a little definition of God's love. God's love is the rich fullness of his tender affection grounded in benevolence and given in selflessness altogether, right? That is what is involved in the rawest principle, God's love. This is the foundational attribute of God's character. The next question we have is, how is this love expressed? How does God express this love in more of his attributes? Let's have a look now, turning to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6 and 7. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. says the following, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. Now, just to remind ourselves of the backstory here, Moses wanted to know more about God and what he was like. He wanted to know what God's glory was like, which we know God's glory is his character. And this is what the Lord did in response. He came and proclaimed his character for Moses in this form. Now, what strikes me, we just learned that the foundational attribute of God's character is love, right? Why is there no mention of the word love here? There's no mention of it. There's just a whole collection of attributes. One of the reasons possibly why, if you look at all of the words translated as love in the scripture in the Old Testament, they all only have the meaning of affection. They don't contain the meaning of benevolence that the Greek word does. So in a sense, the word love didn't quite cut it. It didn't quite cut it back then in their language to explain God's character using that word. So God, instead, he gives all of this array of principles, right? Now, at this point, we have to put our scientific thinking cap on, all right? Some things and processes that are very um, common to science are analysis, observation, um, categorization. We want to look at these two verses and think about the attributes and principles here. And we want to look for similarities, right? Look for similarities and see if we can actually categorize these attributes into two different categories, okay? And I'm going to give you a little bit of assistance, a bit of a head start with this. Um, first, let's just review the, the, the um, attributes. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, goodness, truth, mercy, forgiveness, law, justice, judgment. Okay, some of these words aren't specifically mentioned, but in principle they're in these two texts we just read. Okay, so let us put a couple of categories up and see how we go in aligning them to the categories. 
tender, lenient on one side, absolute, unchanging and stable on the other. Okay? Can we categorize these out? Let's have a look. Truth. What would you say it would be more aligned to in terms of a category? Is it tender lenient or is it more absolute? It's absolute, isn't it? It's absolute, right? Truth. What about gracious? It's lenient, isn't it? It's tender, lenient, warm. Forgiveness? Lenient. What about justice? Absolute. Law? Absolute. Goodness? Mercy? Slow to anger? Tender lenient, right? You can see we can quite easily categorize these out. And then we come up with this, a classification of these attributes. We have on the one side those that are more tender, lenient, and on the other side those that are absolute, unchanging, and stable. It's interesting because these two sides, actually when you think about it, have their roots in that first principle of love that we saw before. Affection, tender, lenient, warm, right? Benevolent is a pure principle. If you change the principle, it's a different principle. So it's absolute, right? So benevolence we've got on this other side. So in love itself, we have this duality, as I like to call it. This is where we can propose a hypothesis that God's character of love is expressed to us in a duality of complementary opposite characteristics, complementary opposite attributes. Does that make sense from what we've just seen? Complementary opposite attributes. Now, we've come to this little idea from just reading one verse, one or two verses. <laughs> And in science, you cannot base an idea on one bit of evidence. That's not good science. You must find more evidence to back it up, right? So the question is, is there evidence for this, more evidence for this in Scripture? Is this, is this how God displays his character? Is this how his character works? Well, it turns out, that there is absolutely plenty of evidence to support this. There's evidence all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament. So much so could fill a book, <laughs> which happens to be what I'm writing. <laughs> um, but yes, there's an abundance of evidence, and I cannot um, go through all of it with you today, but I want to do a little bit more um, just to give a bit more validity for this idea. You know, there's actually a trend in verses in Scripture which talk about both of these attributes. So like one from the Tendalinian side and one from the more absolute, unchanging, stable side. If a verse mentions one from each side, that's actually quite common. Let's have a look at some examples. This was just reminding us of what I mentioned before, that um, the tender lenient qualities are on the side of affection, the absolute unchanging stable qualities are stemming from benevolence, okay? 
So the evidence, verses with dual attributes. Let's have a look. Here is one here, Psalm 103, verse 17. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children. And you can see I've highlighted there, there's two aspects here. There's mercy and there's righteousness. Another one. Psalm 117, the whole psalm in one couple of little verses. Praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye people, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. Again, Psalm 119, 149. Hear my voice according unto thy loving kindness. O Lord, quicken me according to thy judgment. Again, there's this pattern. One from each side of those dualities is expressed in the one verse. There's many, many verses like this. I don't know if you've observed this before. Here is a list of some that I pulled together. A bunch of verses which have a reference of both one attribute from each side. And the verses that I've highlighted there with the, the bright blue, those ones have a specific link to God's character. This is a trend in scripture. The question is, why is this trend there? Why does this exist? Why are they always together, these two sides? Let's have another look at a verse like this. This is just showing that there's more elements that we can add um, to either side. There's more principles. Psalm 85, verse 10. You're all familiar with this text, hopefully. It's a fairly common one. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Let's think about this verse carefully. What is the language of this verse? There's two opposite sides, that's correct. And what is the, the expression of it? It's talking in relationship language, right? This is kind of like a metaphorical thing coming here, through here, a relationship language in connection with these attributes. So it's, it's like it's saying that between these two sides of characteristics, there's a relationship, right? There's a relationship between these, which is why they are together. Together is better, right? With these kind of things. So, this is why I call it the marriage of God's character. Because God's character has these two dual streams and they work together. And if you separate them, there's big problems. Just like if you separate marriages on earth, or if you distort them, or they're out of balance, there's problems. It's the same with these attributes. They must work together. They must work in cooperation with one another in order for them to be balanced, in order for them to have the greatest effect. This is the idea of God's character from what we can look at from these studies. Why is it important to understand this? 
Why is it important for us to have an absolutely clear understanding of God's character, its foundational principles and how it works and how he operates? Let's have a look at a few texts. Turn with me to John chapter 17 and verse 3. John chapter 17 and verse 3 says this, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. The reason why we need to understand this is because we need to know God. Knowing God and who he is, his character, what it's made up of, is linked up with us having eternal life. We need to understand it. We need to clearly, unmistakably know the God that we serve. Secondly, why is it important? We need to know God aright in order for us to be transformed in character. Come along to 1 John 3 and verse 2. 1 John 3 and verse 2, what does this verse say? It says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Notice that last phrase. We see him as he is means we know exactly who this God is. We know his character. We know what he is like. And therefore, we are able to become like him. Right? Understanding the duality of God's character, understanding how these dual principles founded and rooted in love work can actually transform and balance almost all aspects of our lives. Let's have a look. Understanding God's character can help with your personal work with God and character development. We can easily, if we have distorted views of God in our personal experience, it can make us have a really bad time in our walk with God. It can be dry and burdensome, or it can be just lifeless and shallow. But if you understand this and how it applies in your personal walk with God and becoming like him, it can really give you a balanced experience with him. Marriage and family dynamics. Marriage illustrates the principles here. We've seen this from scripture. God has made marriage as an example of what his character is and the dynamics of it. And so as we understand that, it can help in that relationship aspect. And family, parenting, developing the characters of our children. If we want them to be like Christ, we need to know what Christ is like so that we can mirror it, right? It can help us to have a balanced church life, a balanced church experience when we understand these principles and they must work together. And even outreach approaches. In order to rightly represent Jesus to others, we need to have this blend coming through in all of our activities and efforts so that people see that beautiful harmony of character. One more reason why it's important to understand this. Firstly, we need to clearly, unmistakably know the God that we serve. We need to know God aright to be transformed in character. Thirdly, 
we need to understand God's character if we would travel safely through the last days. Have a look at this quote here from The Great Controversy, page 593, paragraph 2 by Ellen White. Those who endeavour to obey all the commandments of God will be opposed and derided. They can stand only in God. In order to endure the trial before them, they must understand the will of God as revealed in his word. They can honour him only as they have a right conception of his character, government and purposes and act in accordance with them. None but those who have fortified the mind with the truths of the Bible will stand through the last great conflict. To every soul will come the searching test. Shall I obey God rather than man? The decisive hour is even now at hand. Are our feet planted on the rock of God's immutable word? Are we prepared to stand firm in defense of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus? Of course, you see the sentence highlighted there. They can honor him. We can honor him only as we have a right conception of his character, government, and purposes. This must be clear to us. Otherwise, you know, in the last days, well, we already see tumultuous things happening, but they can be getting worse. The last days, things will happen which may seem like they're from God, but they're not. And things will happen which may not seem like they are from God, but they are. And if we don't understand how God is working, the principles upon which he acts and works, we can get things a bit messed up, and that could send us down a wrong path. We must understand this. I want to share with you an illustration now to help you remind you of these principles and how they work. Come with me to Psalm 19, verse 1. Psalms chapter 19 and verse 1. It says the following, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. I'm sure you've all read this text before. It's another one that's fairly common. The glory of God, let us remember, is representing his character. So, how many of you have thought about this text and gone outside and thought, how do the heavens actually show us God's character? Have any of you thought about that? I have often puzzled over this. How do the heavens show us God's character? How do they? Well, let me draw some parallels based on what we've looked at today and align it to nature. Let's have a look. The sun, the brilliant sunshine, right? The light from the sun. Let's think of that as representing God's love. God's love for us, right? God's love comes shining down just like the sun. And the sunlight, as it comes towards the earth, it goes through our atmosphere, right? And then we get a reflection of brilliant blue sky, brilliant blue hues. Now, if you remember what Newton discovered, that all the colors of light come from the white light, well, the blue that's reflected in the sky is merely one aspect of that original white light that comes through. It's just reflected out. And it's interesting when you look in scripture to what blue represents. In Numbers 15 and verse 38 to 41, 
it tells us that blue is reminding us of God's law. So again, let's think those absolute, unchanging, stable qualities. God's law, blue sky. What also we find in the sky tends to get in the way of us seeing the blue sometimes are clouds. Clouds come across the path, don't they? And clouds in scripture, if you look at Isaiah 44 verse 22, remind us of sin. Sin comes between us and the sunlight, blocks out the sunlight, can hide our understanding of God's love. Sin also separates us. God's law, you know, it's, it's not in harmony with God's law. So it comes between these elements, right? But then what do you find sometimes on the clouds? Amazing color. Pinks, crimson, apricot, all these stunning colors can be reflected on clouds. If there's no clouds in the sky, there might be a bit of gold, but there's none of these brilliant red-pink hues. What do those colors remind us of? You know, in scripture, the remedy for sin is the blood of Christ, right? 1 John 1.7 says, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. So these red hues that come remind us God's character of grace, of forgiveness, those tender, lenient attributes which God demonstrates, which can actually save us from the condemnation of the law. Right? So you can see here, all in the sky, this blend, all of these colors, the pinks and red hues, that's coming from that same white light too, right? You got the blue strand and you got the pink strand. And um, these are all reflective of God's, God's love to us, just in different ways, all together. There's another thing just we can learn from this too. We cannot look at the sunlight directly. We hurt our eyes, right? We cannot look directly at the sunlight. Same with God's love. We cannot look fully at God's character and understand it in all its fullness in this mortal state as we are in this life. We cannot understand it. So I'm, God said to Moses, you cannot see my face and live. It's too much for you. But we can look at the blue sky. We can look at a pink sunset. Unsullied vision. It doesn't hurt our eyes. And that is the same with God's attributes. When we look at his law, when we see his grace demonstrated through Jesus Christ, we can see those aspects of God's character in a way that we can actually somewhat grasp. And if we have it all together as a full picture, we get the best that we can get of a glimpse of God's love and the fullness of his love for us. That blend of attributes that duality of God's character. As we see it all, we are able to understand what God's love is like. You know, John Newton, he was a giant of science. He was also a giant of faith. And before I read a nice, encouraging statement that, he is, that we can finish with, just let's remind ourselves what we've learned.
God's love is his warm, rich affection, stabilized and driven by a selfless desire for the good of all. God's love is expressed to us in a duality of attributes that complement and support one another. There is a strong relationship between the dual aspects of God's character that is comparable to marriage. And nature illustrates this view of God's character. Here is the quote from Isaac Newton. I think I said John Newton before, didn't I? Oh. Isaac Newton. <laughs> Alrighty. Here's the quote. Godliness consists in the knowledge, love, and worship of God, humanity in love, righteousness, and good offices towards man. What is it? Godliness. We know God, like we're learning today. If we know God and what he is like, and then if our lives are transformed such that towards humanity, towards everyone around us, we reveal these dualities, these dual aspects of God's character, his loving kindness, his tenderness, as well as his law and truth and justice. If we have that blend, that is what it means to live a godly life. That is what it means to be transformed such that we can honor God in these last days. This is God's purpose for you. God's purpose for you is godliness. Originally, he made you, he made every human being to be in the image of God, to reveal his character. Even though sin has marred that, this is still God's purpose. It is God's purpose today and every day till he comes that we would be like him in character and reveal his character to the world. So, today, the heart appeal is soak up the sunbeams of God's love. Let him reach you with every hue and let it warm and transform you. And may your life be a living testimony to the glory of God as a result. Gracious Heavenly Father, your love is so strong and true. Strong in the harmonious blend of attributes and grounded in that selflessness which leads you to do what is mind-blowing that you would do. Father in heaven, we are just grateful for the revelation of your character as given to us in your word. And we thank you, Father, for helping us to understand this and um, also for the promise that you will work in us to will and do of your good pleasure that you will not forsake us, that you will transform us into your image. We pray that in every person's life here today and throughout the week coming and the weeks to come, that you would work in a powerful way, pour out your spirit upon us and in us, Father, that we may know and understand you better and reveal your character to those around. Thank you, Father, for this Sabbath. May your presence go with us now as we continue in fellowship. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This message was made available by the Dundas Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page.
Dundas Seventh-day Adventist Church. Love of God, How Strong and True, by Dion Muchette and the Restoration Singers. Marlita Fong will now sing, I Look to You, from her album, Pray On. As I lay me down, heaven hear me now, I'm lost without a cause, after giving it my all, winter storms have come. After all that I've been through Who 
to our series, You're Not Alone, in which Alan Sonter, for many years a missionary educator in the islands of the South Pacific, tells stories that help us to know that God is always watching over us, wherever we are. This episode is entitled, Who Woke the Captain? Back in the 1950s, I worked as a school principal in an isolated part of the Pacific, now known as the Republic of Kiribati. The Seventh-day Adventist mission I worked with operated a 65-foot ship called the Fetuao, and you can feel very much alone when you're out of sight of land on such a small craft. The coral atolls of the islands of Kiribati are only a couple of metres above sea level, and they disappear from sight when you are on a ship only 12 to 15 kilometres away from them. One evening, we left the island of Taroa, where the colony headquarters were situated, to travel to Ocean Island, then a thriving phosphate mining island. The trip took about 36 hours, and we normally took star sightings at dawn and dusk for navigation purposes. On board were the captain, Alec Thompson, several Kiribati crew, and I, who went along to learn navigation. We travelled all the first night and the next day, but because of the overcast skies, we were unable to get any star sightings, either in the morning or evening. Alec, a veteran of the ocean, and a man who knew his God as a close friend, used to say that there was no need to worry if we couldn't see the stars, because God knew that we didn't need them. The ship surged through the warm tropical waters on the last night of the trip. We expected to see Ocean Island about 7.30 the next morning. The night wore away, and we seemed to be so very much alone out there all by ourselves, surrounded by the vast Pacific Ocean. With no star sightings for well over 30 hours, we could have been way off course, and Ocean Island was a very small target to find in an ocean known for its unpredictable current changes. A ship could spend a long time searching for Ocean Island in the days before radio and satellite navigation. It came five o'clock in the morning. The cabin was pitch black. Alec and I were asleep in our bunks, and most of the crew were asleep in their quarters in the bow of the ship. The man on watch kept an eye out ahead, while the helmsman peered drowsily at the compass and tried to keep the ship on course as the swells nudged the bow from time to time. Suddenly, Alec was wide awake. Someone had touched him. He strained to see who was there, but could see nothing, and could hear nothing in the darkness. Like any good captain, he decided that because he was awake, he had better check that all was well with the ship. So he made his way out of the cabin and up into the wheelhouse. Something prompted him to take the binoculars and scan the horizon. As he moved the binoculars to starboard, he suddenly stopped. What was that? A light, very faint, just a mere glow on the horizon, caught his eye. Was it really a light? No ships had reported their position in the area on the radio schedule the previous evening. It couldn't be Ocean Island, as that must still be many nautical miles away. Yet, there it was, that strange glow, about 30 degrees to starboard. That's the right-hand side of the ship. 
perhaps he was only imagining it. He would get a second opinion. Feeling his way through the darkness of the cabin, he tapped me on the shoulder. Alan, come up on top and have a look. Within a few moments, we were standing on top of the wheelhouse, and as I steadied myself against the ventilator, he handed me the binoculars. See if you can make out anything interesting, remarked Alec as I lifted the glasses and focused them on the faint line of the horizon ahead. At first, as I looked ahead, I could make out nothing. But as I moved the glasses around to the starboard side, a faint glow caught my attention. Say, there's a light over there, I exclaimed. So you can see it too, he nodded. There must really be something there. Briefly, he told me how he had seen the light but doubted his own eyes. There's only one thing it can be. It must be Ocean Island. We must have travelled faster than we thought. But what puzzles me is that it is at least 30 degrees to starboard of our course. But we had no star sights last evening. We could be that much off course, I responded. After discussing the problem for a few moments, we decided that we should alter course toward the light. I stayed on top with the glasses while Alec went below and took the wheel. Slowly the bow began to swing over as I kept the glasses glued to that faint glow. That's it, I called as the mast came in line with the light and the ship steadied on the new course. Then, as if someone had thrown a switch, the light went out. As Alec joined me, I handed him the glasses saying, it's gone. It was there until we set course by it, but then it disappeared. He stood looking intently ahead for a long time before he lowered the glasses and shook his head. I can't understand it, but it was there. Slowly and thoughtfully, we climbed down into the wheelhouse. Let's go and have a look at the chart, he suggested. The cabin seemed oppressive after the cool breeze on top of the ship. Spreading the chart out on the table, Alec took the dividers and stepped off the distance between our estimated position and Ocean Island. We could not be less than 35 miles away, he mused, and in any case, the only lights at this time of the morning are at the phosphate workings on the opposite side of the island and are hidden from us by the shape of the land. From our position so close to the water, we knew we would not see the low hump of the island until we were within 11 or 12 miles of it. And with our speed of six or seven knots, it would be two hours before we could expect to sight land. The clock showed 5.30, and we sat looking at the chart in puzzled silence. What had made that light? We had both seen it. It could not have been a ship, as it was not sharp enough for that and there were no ships about. Finally, I broke the silence. Something made that light, so I think we should stay on our new course for a couple of hours and see what turns up. Alec agreed, so we climbed back into our bunks and tried to get a few minutes more sleep. Soon the first light of dawn began to chase away the darkness in the east. To the south, where we would have been, had we not changed course, a tropical storm poured down rain in torrents, completely blotting out the sea. 
An agile Kiribati sailor clung precariously to the top of the mast, hopefully searching the horizon ahead for the first glimpse of land. The feeling of excitement could be felt. When would we see land? A little later, as I stood on the wheelhouse roof, thinking over the happenings of the early morning, Alec joined me. I'm certainly glad we aren't over there, he remarked, pointing to the south. We wouldn't be able to see land a quarter of a mile away. About half past seven, from the man up the mast, came the age-old cry of the mariner. Land ho! Yes, there was Ocean Island, dead ahead. Had we not altered heading, we would have been in the middle of that squall and would have sailed right past Ocean Island without seeing it. Who knows how long we would have been looking for it. But what about the mystery light? After plotting our course on the chart, we estimated the path of the storm then passing to the south. The rain squall would have passed over Ocean Island about five that morning. And what we had seen, we believe, was the reflection from the underside of the clouds of the floodlights around the phosphate workings. As the cloud moved on, the reflection had disappeared. For just a few minutes, around five o'clock, the light was there to guide us. We were not alone out there that night. Someone was with us, someone who cared enough to wake the captain just at the right time. Well, who woke the captain? I believe God sent his angel to tap the captain on the shoulder and God impressed him to take the monoculars and scan the horizon. No, we were not alone that night out there on the ocean. The God who made us and loves us was there. Friend, if you feel all alone today, if you feel that no one cares for you, just take a moment now and ask the God of heaven to come and care for you. He loves you too much to ignore a cry for help. You've been listening to our series, You're Not Alone. Stories told by Alan Sonter that help us to know that God is always watching over us, wherever we are. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3abinaustralia.org.au or give us a call within Australia on 2 4973-3456. May God bless you and remember, you are not alone. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.